If you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we'll be covering uh, chapter, uh, verses 6 through 9. And uh, after preaching about two and two chapters and now into chapter 3, I, I must say Galatians is quite a difficult book. I didn't realize how hard it would be. Um, you know, the first two chapters are, are just that the difficulty lies in kind of the homiletical you know, application that comes out of this. And, and now we get into some uh, uh, deep theology. And I'm not trying to be deep. It's, uh, I blame it on Paul. He, he's the one being deep. And I'm just trying to do the best to make it clear to you. And, and uh, I, I decided to break it up. Uh, I was thinking about doing 6 through 14, but 10 through 14 is, uh, is so complicated, so difficult. I even, I even need to read a Ph.D. thesis literally next week to, to, to understand 10 through 14. Uh, but uh, 6, through nine, 6 through 9 has some uh, wonderful, wonderful truth that, that will bless us. Um, so let me, let me read this text for you. Uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and, when, and it was counted to him as righteousness, so know that those who are of faith, those are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of, or who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Our fathers have a, a great influence, influence over our lives. I recently saw a video clip of two young sisters in Syria, and, and their father had, had been killed by somehow uh, through the, the armies of the dictator uh, Bashar al-Assad. And they were, they were lamenting and they were crying about how much they missed their father. They asked the man who was interviewing them what they had, de- what they had done to, to deserve such a fate. They were cold at night because they had no father to get firewood for them. They, they were hungry because they had no father to provide in the way they were used to. Fathers provide for us, they protect us, they influence us, they lead us, they model to their children the kind of people we should grow up to be. I saw another video of a clip of a a teenage boy meeting his father for the first time, and for some odd reason, his mother had been led to believe that the, the father of her son had been killed when he was a baby, but when she discovered that this was not the case, she arranged a meeting for her son to meet his father. The father and the son met in the mall. They embraced for a long time. And the mother wrote afterwards that her son had a void in his heart, finally filled. Today, Paul wants to tell you some good news that some of you may not know. That you too have a father. A spiritual father from ages past. Paul will let us know that if you didn't know before today, that an ancient man named Abraham written in Genesis thousands of years ago, is not some Sunday school story irrelevant to your life today in in the 21st century. No, today you will learn that Abraham is your father. The record of Abraham's life in Genesis is not merely some ancient Bible study, uh, Bible story, uh, much more than that. It is uh, rather a story of of, of your father, that you need to know well, because in knowing Abraham, your father, you learn who you are at your most foundational level. The book of Galatians is about the preservation of the free grace of the gospel 
that is always in danger of being lost because of our natural legalistic tendencies. Our hearts are always attempting to replace the grace of the gospel with the works of our flesh, whether that comes from within ourselves in clever and subtle ways, or whether that comes more explicitly from false teachers. For the Galatians, you had false teachers preaching a twisted gospel, and you had church members wanting to believe in a twisted gospel. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul began his defense of the gospel by arguing that his, his gospel was authoritative and independent of the Jerusalem apostles. He had received his gospel directly from God through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And, when, and yet, when the Jerusalem apostles heard Paul's gospel, they ratified it and declared it to be true. Paul's gospel was of such an authority that Paul rebuked Peter on the basis of it. Chapter 2, 15 through 21 explained the substance of the gospel. The gospel gives an imputed righteousness based on the cross of Christ found in Christ. It is not a righteousness earned by keeping Old Testament law. Therefore, all those who believe in Christ Jesus are justified. In chapters 3, 1 through 5, Paul then turned directly to the Galatians and appealed to their personal experience. Their conversions validated this gospel of grace. They received the Spirit through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by their observance of the law. They were not circumcised when they received the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point was that the way you begin your Christian lives is the way you should continue your Christian lives, by faith in Christ alone and the power of the Holy Spirit. But what we still don't have so far in Galatians is a, a biblical, exegetical argument from Scripture on why salvation can only be received through faith and not by works of the law. Remember, the only Bible the Galatians have when Paul wrote this letter is the Old Testament. Since Galatians is probably the second earliest New Testament letter written, at the very most, the Galatians may have the book of James, the New Testament's earliest letter. If Paul's gospel was truly directly from Christ, then the basic contours of Paul's gospel must then be in accord with the contours of the gospel presented in the Old Testament. The false teachers in Galatia, the, the Judaizers, were appealing to the Old Testament as corroboration of their false gospel of works righteousness. So Paul, in today's passage, addresses this corrupted Old Testament theology with sound biblical Old Testament theology. Paul appeals to the Old Testament as scriptural corroboration for his gospel of grace. Does the Pauline gospel contradict the Old Testament? Did the Old Testament teach that you were saved by your obedience to the law? And does the New Testament teach that you're saved by grace? Many people today believe this, by the way. Paul says, no, it's the same gospel. The, the gospel of the New Testament is as old as Genesis. It is as old as the very first book of the Bible. It is as old as Abraham. From the beginning of time until the end of time, from, gener, gen, from Genesis to Revelation, there has always just been one way to get into heaven. The main issue for Paul in today's passage, is the identity of Abraham's children. 
Just who is the son of Abraham? Just who is the daughter of Abraham? The Judaizers were saying to the Galatians that a child of Abraham is someone who has been circumcised. It is someone who keeps the Mosaic law. But Paul will argue against that false false theology by arguing that a child of Abraham is someone who simply believes. Those who believe are the children of Abraham. And those who have believed have received the blessing of Abraham. You see, for the Jews in Old Testament history, and in the time of Jesus and Paul, to be a child of Abraham was was your most fundamental identity. If you were a Jew, and you were a physical descendant of Abraham, there was no greater privilege in the world. To be a child of Abraham was your, your, your highest boast in life. Your lineage to Abraham was your confidence before God and before the world. It was kind of like a, having some sort of ethnic pride, but it was more exact than that. You might boast that you're from England and you're an Englishman, or, but you would boast even more if you were the grandson or, or granddaughter of the Queen of England. The Jews of Jesus and Paul's day had that same kind of pride. When the Pharisees came to John the Baptist to, to, for baptism, John warned them, John the Baptist warned them of this false presumption. He said in, in Matthew 3, 9, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In John 8, when Jesus told the Pharisees that they were sinners, this is how they answered the Lord in verse 33. We are Abraham's seed and have never been enslaved to anyone. When the Lord told the Pharisees that their father was actually Satan, they respond to him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. We're good. Now get this. What Paul is saying in these verses today to the Galatian church who are Gentiles is this. You are sons of Abraham. Gentiles. Remember chapter 2, verse 15? Paul said to Peter, we're Jews by nature. We're, he's, he's arguing from a, 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 the Jewish perspective. We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. To the Jews, Gentiles, they're dogs. And Paul is saying these dogs are sons and daughters of Abraham. I mean, in the original historical context, these verses this morning, they are shocking and inflammatory. This is why the Jews want to murder Paul. Because he says stuff like this. Throughout Paul's missionary journey, the Jews are are trying to kill Paul because he's saying things like, Gentiles, you're the sons of Abraham. And by the time Paul gets to Jerusalem, at the end of Acts, the letter of Galatians has been long written, it's been circulated, it's public knowledge, and because of words like this before us this morning, Jerusalem becomes a death trap for him. So much so that in Acts 23, 40 Jews pronounce a vow of curse on themselves that they will not eat or drink unless they kill Paul. See, what, what, what Paul says to you today 
is that you, the believer, a Gentile, for the most part, unless anybody's Jewish here, a non-Jew, you're a child of Abraham. This is amazing. And as much as the Jews hated and disagreed with that statement in the first century, to the degree that they would kill somebody for it, they understood just how great a privilege that was. Abraham is your father. Abraham is our father. Even today, to say that can evoke great hatred. If you were to fly to Jerusalem tomorrow, and you were to go to northeast, uh, northeast of the city, to the western wall of the temple, and you were to, uh, to speak to some Orthodox Jews after they were finished praying, and you introduced yourself, and, and they said, uh, uh, who are you? And, uh, and you said, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a true child of Abraham. Uh, and, and, and you're not. I mean, this would, this would, there would be a violent reaction. Today, we're going to revel in our relationship to Abraham. We're going to answer the question, what does Abraham have to do with me? This guy, this old man from thousands of years ago, what sort of relevance does he have in my life? And we're going to learn that that Abraham is your father, you're his child, and the kind of person Abraham was is who we must be. Let's begin our study in verse 6 by asking the question, why is your father so special? Why is your father Abraham so special? It's not enough to know that you have a father. Let's say you thought your father was dead. You meet him for the first time. You know that, it, that, that he's alive. There's a, more, more, there's a more important question that needs to be asked and answered. You need to know who your father is. What kind of father do you have? Because knowing who your father is will help you know who you are. Is, he, is what he's most known for noble and good? then you must be the kind of person your father is. Fathers provide a pattern, an example to follow. Their their values become your values. And so Paul begins verse 6 in chapter 3 on the heels of verses 1 through 5 that we covered two Sundays ago. And it was in those verses Paul called on the Galatians to remember how they began their Christian lives. Was it by faith in the Spirit or was it through meritorious law-keeping? And and so now Paul in verse 6, he brings Abraham into his argument for the first time in this letter with the words, just as Abraham. In other words, this reality of, of salvation by faith alone didn't begin with you. God's salvation formula was established in the, in the beginning of Scripture, thousands of years ago through a, through a man named Abraham. And we, and we first meet Abraham in, in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. And, and, and we need to understand, uh, in order to understand that why Paul begins this argument about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, we need to understand that, that why he does this with Abraham in order to do that, we need to, to, to see, to, to understand a little bit about the context of Genesis. You see, Genesis was originally written together with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as one entity, and that one entity is, was called, is called the Torah. The Torah was written by Moses and first given to Israel after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so Israel, they're sitting together on the plains of Moab. They're about to enter the promised land led by Joshua. They are about to become an official nation. Up until that point, it's important to remember they're not really a nation. 
At the end of Genesis, when Jacob took his family to Egypt to escape the famine, they total about 70 people in number. But 70 people is not a nation. In Exodus, they eventually multiplied to a population in the millions under Pharaoh's captivity, but they're enslaved. They have no leader. They have no government. They have no law. They have no land. You can't call Israel a nation at this point. They're, they're still a tribe at best. And so what does a tribe of people, what do they need before they become a nation? They need a history, don't they? They need a worldview. They need national values. They need laws. They need land. They need property. And so when they receive Genesis and the, the rest of the Torah for the first time, they get all of that. And in Genesis 1, 11, uh, first Moses uh, describes their history, their origins. They, they get a worldview. They learn about the creation and the fall and the flood. They learn about why the world is the way it is. They're instructed about God's plan for mankind. And we call Genesis chapters 1 through 11 primeval history. Then from Genesis 12 through 50, God gives to Israel their core national values. This is what Israel must be known for. This is what they must be called. This is what they are called to display to the renegade nations of the world. Because remember, when Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham out of Ur and he begins the formation of his own covenant nation, it, it's in the backdrop of Genesis 10 and 11 and the Tower of Babel and all these nations that have been scattered in rebellion to God. And so God, in his salvation plan, he needs to choose one nation to be a model, to be an example to the rest of the nations that have scattered that this is how you get right with God. This is how you return to him. And so the first core national value that Moses gives to Israel in Genesis is found in Genesis 12 through 22 and the story of the life of Abraham. And the core national value is what Paul quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6, in verse 6 here in chapter 3 of Galatians. Paul writes this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is Israel's first national value, and that value is faith. They must be known to the world by their faith in Yahweh. This is the message to the nations. Do you, do you want to know how you get right with God? You need to believe in Him. And so from Genesis 12 through 22, Israel is taught this national value of faith. And the emphasis in these ten chapters is Abraham's faith. It is Abraham's faith that Israel is called to adopt as their national value as they enter into the promised land. But, if you know the Old Testament, you know this core national value never materialized. We don't see it in Israel. We don't see it in the Old Testament. Instead, by the time we get to the first century, what marks the nation of Israel, the value that marks them, is legalism. And the reason for that 
was because they had misinterpreted the main point of Abraham's life as recorded in Genesis 12 through 22. In Paul's day, Judaism, when they spoke of Abraham and Genesis 12 through 22, the focus was on his obedience rather than his faith. Rabbinic literature of this time is filled with quotes about the central importance of Abraham's obedience. As I was studying for this sermon, I read quote after a quote from major rabbinic texts of the time, emphasizing, look at Abraham's obedience. Look at how he obeyed the law. But as important as Abraham's obedience was in these, in these ten chapters, faith in God's word is what Paul is saying is the main point of Abraham. Paul's quote of Genesis 15, 6 here in verse 6 of chapter 3, listen to me, is a public correction of Jewish theology. It is a public correction of Jewish theology, a theology that the Judaizers have brought into their understanding of the gospel. When Paul wrote, when Moses wrote Genesis 15, 6, he he wrote it right after God had promised him an heir from his very loins. Abraham is an old man by now in chapter 15. He still has no promised child. There's no descendant that God had promised him him in Genesis 12. And so he's wondering if if his relative Eleazar will will be the one to inherit the blessing and the promise. And so In Genesis 15, God reassures Abraham that his heir will come from his own body and that God will multiply his descendants like the stars of heaven. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your seed be. Then Moses writes this about Abraham in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith was the instrument of righteousness that God counted to Abraham. Through Abraham's faith, God counted Abram as righteous. He reckoned Abraham as righteous. The word counting, accounted, is an accounting term that means credit. Even though Abraham was still a sinner, God credited Abraham's account with perfect righteousness. In Genesis 12 through 22, it it isn't Abraham's obedience or his faithfulness that God counts as righteousness. Paul says in verse 6, as he quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, it was because Abraham believed God that it was counted to him as righteousness. On the surface, if you look at Genesis 15 6, it would appear that uh, Abraham believed as a result of this assurance. But the, but the verbal structure is actually what grammarians called a definitive marker. It's a literary marker to show that uh, Abram's entire life was a life of faith. It's a summary statement of, of Abraham's faith that began in Genesis 12. Go to Genesis 12 with me. Go to Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 4.
And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at verse 4. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. You see, it seems like if you read verses 1 through 4, that what is being emphasized here is Abram's obedience, right? 1 through 3 is the command, is the promise, and verse 4 is the response. Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. But Paul, as he begins his argument, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. The verses that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And his point is, this is how you are to see the entire life of Abraham in these ten chapters in Genesis. This is the interpretive grid by which you must understand chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. This is how the Pharisees of Paul's day were interpreting Genesis 12. See, it's his obedience is being emphasized. And Paul says, no, you've got it all wrong. What is implicit in Genesis 12, 1 through 4 is his faith. He believed in the promise before he obeyed God's call to go to the promised land. And the writer of the Hebrews sees this very clearly in Hebrews 11.8. Listen to, listen to this verse. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an, for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. In Genesis 22, when Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, again, it seems like Moses is highlighting Abraham's obedience. This is how Judaism understood this chapter. But Paul, again, he begins this argument with Abraham by by giving a summary statement about Abraham's life. It was by faith. Everything must be interpreted through the grid of Genesis 15 and 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is how the writer of Hebrews sees that same event in Genesis 22. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tempted, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. Why is your father so special? Because he believed in God's word. Because he was justified by faith alone. And Paul wants us to, he's exhorting us, he's exhorting the Judaizers and the, and the, and the, and the Jews even, and, and the church that we need to read our Bibles with precision and, and detail, or we can 
lose our entire salvation for God's people. If your father's signature quality is faith, then if you believe the way you do, that makes you his son and daughter. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. What makes you a child of Abraham? Verse 7, the answer is faith. If your life is marked by vibrant faith in Christ, you are imitating your father. Paul begins verse 7 with the word so. In light of verse 6, this is the the conclusion we can draw in verse 7. So, so know this. Know something, know something from this this summary statement of Abraham's life in chapter 6 in chapter 15 or in Genesis 15:6. If you're wrong about Genesis 12 through 22 in Abraham, if the point of those 10 chapters in Genesis was Abraham's faith, If Israel's core national value is therefore faith, if this is what God's covenant nation is is supposed to be about, if if uh, if this is a core value and quality of of God's people, then, verse 7, know that those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. This is all true about the purpose of Genesis 12 through 22 and the life of Abraham. Know this. The sons of Abraham are those who are of faith. The Judaizer was telling the Galatians, do you want to be a part of the people of God? Do you want to be a child of Abraham like us? Get circumcised. Submit to the dietary laws of, of Moses. Continue to obey the a Mosaic law. Then they would say, Look at, look at Genesis 12, 22, 12 through 22. Look at Abraham's incredible display of adherence to the law. Look at how he, he obeyed God's call to leave Ur and go to the promised land. Look at, he, he circumcised in Genesis 17. Look at how he obeys God's command to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And, and Paul destroys that argument in two verses. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. This is the most important thing about Abraham. So if you want to be a child of Abraham, believe in God, too, in the same way. It's a powerful response in the most terseness of of space. Is your father Abraham? Are you a child of Abraham? If you are, Paul describes you with This phrase in verse 7, those who are of faith. The phrase means those whose identity is derived from faith in Christ. Those whose relationship to God is determined by faith. He's talking about your basic life orientation. The guiding principle by which you live. Those who live from or out of or on the basis of faith. When you woke up in the morning today, what was your first religious impulse? Was it your trust in Christ for His grace and mercy? Or was it this, oh, another day that I need to work for God in order to pay back all my debts? 
throughout your week, what is your basic, uh, what is the basic thrust of your heart whenever you think about God? Is it, I have all that God has promised me in Christ through faith, or is it, I need to work for him in order to get God to owe me a favor? When you pray to God, are you confident? Are you confident in his overflowing grace and mercy in Christ for you? Or do you feel like God isn't really listening to you because you just haven't done enough for him? You're just not good enough. You don't meet his, his, his standards. And so, eh, let me just pray this prayer like a, like a Hail Mary football pass in the fourth quarter. Listen, it is very easy to read the Bible over and over and never hear the gospel. Some of you have read Genesis 12 through 22 about Abraham's life for years and decades, and you've never heard the gospel. And that's a problem because it's there. Verse 8 says it's there. Look. The scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What? What? Proclaim the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. The gospel is in those chapters. And you've never heard it. How can that be? Every day your flesh and the devil team up together and try to deceive you by telling you that you're no good, you're a failure. Or you are good enough without Christ. You're so good and righteous, you can get through the day without any sort of dependence on Him. You don't need to read the Word. You don't need to pray today. You're strong enough to make it. Every hour of the day, brothers and sisters, we need to listen to the gospel. We need to listen forward in Scripture. Because the gospel makes clear that Christ never accuses you before the Father. The gospel makes clear that Christ is always pleading for you on the basis of his shed blood. If you think God is condemning you, your heart is in the wrong place. If you're not confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, your heart is somewhere else. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. And it is this heart orientation. It, it involves, what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is belief. But faith involves thinking. Our faith is a cerebral life of faith. You see, the battle of faith versus unbelief takes place in the boxing ring of the mind. Go to Hebrews real quick with me, and we'll let's look at, look at uh, Abraham again. Hebrews chapter 11. 17 through 19. And we see this 
this thinking, this pensive notion of faith. Chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. God, when he reassured Abraham of the promise, he said, It'll be Isaac that the promise will go through. This multiplication of descendants and nations, it'll be through Isaac. And and that assumes, that demands that Isaac must have children for that promise to go through. But here, God is saying, I want you to offer up Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him. And yet Abraham, Abraham is thinking, wait a minute. The promise is through Isaac. How does the promise get fulfilled unless Isaac lives? See, if Abraham would have stopped thinking at this moment, he would not have obeyed. He would have said, this must be wrong because you told me it's through Isaac that the promise of many nations and descendants is fulfilled. It's through my son. But he thought. He think, he, 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 he started thinking. What did he think? Verse 19. He considered... He kept thinking that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. And as he was thinking about God's promise and the character of God, he obeyed. Through this thinking kind of pensive, considering faith. Christians, we're not obedience robots, right? We're not... uh, obedient automatons. No! We are faith-filled doers of the Word. We are believing doers. We need to think. What is this faith-filled thinking kind of this thinking kind of faith-fueled obedience look like? In James 1.20, For example, the Lord tells us that human anger does not produce God's righteousness. And we show our faith in God's wisdom by forsaking this anger. And we are persuaded, we we think about in our minds, that no matter how much we believe that our anger is going to advance our cause, that God's word is more reliable than our plans. We think about, okay, if I get angry now, maybe... Uh, this person will uh, get my order faster at the, at the Burger King. But God says that the anger of God will never produce his righteousness, and so I know that in the long term that this will never succeed. See, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about these truths, and then I'm believing in those truths, and then this obedience, this wholehearted obedience is the outcome. Faith is a thoughtful faith. It's a pensive faith. And faith is a joyful faith. We have a joyful faith in Christ. So much of our church is made up of people who think you believe in Christ when you first become a Christian, and then for the rest of of your life, you just kind of work for God. You flounder around. You you go from church to church, and you just kind of linger and 
hang around. And, and so many seem believers struggle with assurance. They wonder, was my initial profession of faith serious? Was it genuine? And you spend, you spend the rest of your life thinking, did you really believe 20 years ago? And that type of approach is, 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 it reflects this, this warped view of the Christian life on a foundational level. No, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me every day. It doesn't matter what, what happened 10 years ago. Do, do you believe in the gospel today? And tomorrow and Tuesday. I like uh, John Piper's illustration about this dynamic. And, and his illustration goes like this Picture heaven as this grand orchestra hall. And, and think of the, the music of the symphony as the glory of God. And everybody here knows that faith is the precondition for entering that hall and enjoying that music. Some of, some of us have the mistaken notion that trusting in Christ is like buying a ticket to orchestra hall as a permanent possession. A, a permanent possession redeemable at any time. And, and that you can put this tic- ticket away in your back pocket as the guarantee of your admission someday. Even though the affections of your life are captured by the music of the world. See, that is not a biblical view of saving faith. That understanding is a delusion. Faith is a precondition for enjoying the symphony of God's glory. Yes, that's true. But not in the sense of getting a ticket. But in the sense of receiving new ears that appreciate and love the glory and beauty of the music of heaven. The real precondition of enjoying the music of heaven throughout eternity is a new new heart that delights in the things of God as you trust in Christ daily. Saving faith is not a decision card that you carry in your pocket to somehow pacify your conscience while your mind and your heart and affections is is just captivated by the pleasures of the world. Saving faith loves Christ throughout your life, and this love produces joy in your heart. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Okay, Abraham was a paradigm for salvation. He believed God it was counted to him as righteousness. Those who believe in Christ are justified. And this faith qualifies them to be a part of the people of God. But this begs the question, how so? How does my justification directly connect to Abraham's justification? Uh, where is that link? And in and, and verses 8 through 9, we get the link. And the link is a promise. It's a covenant that places me into the family of Abraham. Verses 8 and 9, we are children of Abraham because of a promise. Paul takes it one step further in these two verses. He says, Gentiles are sons of Abraham because they are also part of the Abrahamic covenant. We are sons of Abraham because we are part of the same promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. The the verses that I just showed you moments ago. 
And this last clause at the end of verse 8 comes from verse 3 of Genesis 12. We call these verses the Abrahamic promise. From here until the end of Revelation, God fulfills the covenant that we saw in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. When you're reading Exodus and Deuteronomy and Matthew and Romans, you're, seeing, you're reading how God fulfills that promise. Right now, today, in your life, in this country, in this world, God is working out this promise he made to Abraham thousands of years ago. And we're part of that. You're not a son of Abraham just incidentally because you were saved in the same way Abraham was. Paul says this in verse 8. Scripture... For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, here Scripture is personified as God himself talking. He was proclaiming the gospel. We're not children of Abraham incidentally or accidentally. We're not a last-minute revision of God's plan of salvation. When God called and saved Abraham, your father, God had our salvation thousands of years later in his mind. And so when he told Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you, he saw this justification of the church. When he pronounced the the Abrahamic promise, when he said all the nations will be blessed in you, he was proclaiming the gospel. Where's the gospel here? Where's the gospel here, Pastor? Well, the the gospel is found in that word blessed. All the nations will be blessed in you. The gospel is found in, in, in those words in you, in Abraham. That 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 blessing that blessing here is justification by faith in verses in verse eight. Justify the Gentiles by faith. That's the blessing of the word blessed in that statement, all the nations will be, will be blessed in you. Verse 6. The blessing is, God, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see the gospel in those words, in you as well. In Abraham. What does that mean? Verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say unto seeds and referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Chapter 3, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. The gospel is Christ. And so, because Christ was Abraham's descendants... That's how we are blessed in Abraham when we are in Christ, Abraham's descendant. The gospel blessing is verse 14. It's the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham is justification by faith, and the blessing of Abraham is the the Holy Spirit. And so you can sum all of that, all of that with one word, heaven. All of this brings us to heaven. Until... Genesis 17, Abraham was, remember, he was, he was Abram. He gets this new name, Abraham, in Genesis 17. 
Abraham means father of many nations. God said to him in Genesis 17, 5, And no longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham saw into the future as Gentiles, his spiritual children in Christ, receiving the same blessing of justification he did. And Paul's point to the Judaizers is that not only that the Gentiles are sons of Abraham, that they are sons of, by faith, Paul's point is they are sons of Abraham by the promise and not through the law. In verse 9, Paul brings together the emphasis on faith from verse 6, quoting Genesis 15, 6, with the promise of blessing from Genesis 12, 3, quoted in verse 8, and he puts them together in verse 9. So then, those who are faith are best, are blessed with Abraham. What does Abraham have to do with you? He's your father. In what sense? Well, who he is is who you must be. And who is Abraham? Who is Abraham? The end of verse 9 says this. I love the way Paul ends verse 9. Abraham the believer. Abraham is the believer. He is the one who believes. If you have the ESV, it's translated the man of faith. Abraham is the man of faith. We too must be men and women of faith, the believer, always believing in Christ, always trusting in the cross, always depending on the Holy Spirit. Are you a, are you a believer? Do you know your Father? And do you imitate what He was famous for? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we, for some of us, we have a Father closer than flesh and blood. Father, we've never met. Father, separated by time, thousands of years apart. But a father who received a promise by faith and it was justified. The father whose promise was made to us as well. So, Lord, help us to um, be many Abrahams in a 21st century, 21st century world. And the value that Israel fa- failed to display by failing to believe in, in Yahweh, that we, would, that we would succeed in by trusting in Christ every day. We ask this in Jesus' name.